Hello, everyone. Welcome to the JD Power Travel Podcast number four. And uh, thanks for joining us today. This is Mike Vermillion uh, from JD Power. And today joining us are Mike Taylor, uh, who heads up our uh, airport, airline, and rental car practice. Uh, Hi, Mike. Hi. And uh, also our uh, our lead analyst for the travel practice here at JD Power, Jenny Corwin. Uh, How are you doing today, Jenny? Doing great. Thank you. Great. Thanks for joining us today. So, uh, so topic number one, uh, airports, Uber, and Lyft. Uh, so, Mike, uh, has seen some recent uh, reports that uh, airports are looking to make up falling revenue from car parking and car rentals uh, because uh, Uber and Lyft are essentially generating more rides to the airport, and the, and the airports are seeing fewer rides from taxis and, and, uh, and limos. And there's some sort of... Um, uh, disconnect in terms of you know the revenue per ride coming into the airports. So, uh, uh, did you see that? Any, any thoughts on it in terms of? Um, uh, yeah, the, this uh, is a, obviously a trend that, that we're seeing in our both our airport study and our rental car study is basically um, the TNCs, um, Uber, Lyft, etc. Are basic substitutes, very direct substitutes for taxis. They're also somewhat direct substitutes for rental car on certain occasions. And then uh, if you think about it in an economic sense, they're a substitute also for parking um, because the per ride prices are so much lower than other ways of accessing, like I live you know, near the New York airports and uh, black cars or limo rides or about from my part of Connecticut down to LaGuardia, about $200 each way. But if I were to get out my app and call up Lyft, uh, it would be about maybe $60 uh, on a peak period and $40 on a non-peak period for a total of about 100 Now, compare that to the pricing of certain airport parking lots. For example, the near parking lots uh, at JFK are $39 a day. So it's a really simple calculation to make in your head. Do I want to be picked up and driven door to door for about $100, maybe $120? Uh, or if I'm taking a, and I'm taking a three-day trip or pay $120 to park and walk through a big parking structure in the cold. And so the you know, the answer is pretty simple. <clears throat> and we're going to see this more and more. And as I think we've mentioned on previously on these podcasts, you know, parking revenues are a huge source of revenue for the airports. Uh, Charlotte, Douglas, CLT um, in North Carolina, their number one revenue source is parking lot. Uh, the revenue they get from the parking lot, higher than food and beverage and retail and higher than any of the, the fees they collect from any of the airlines. So you could argue that they're a parking lot with an airport attached to it. So, yeah, we, we've seen this in the data as well, that uh, people are making that economic choice. And, of course, the uh, the apparent business plan of the TNCs is to capitalize uh, of rating market share from wherever they can get the demand. Okay, thanks, Mike. Uh, topic number two is in the airlines. And so one uh, thing that we've seen recently announced uh, in the airline industry is around the clubs and the fact that the airlines are now uh, restricting access uh, to the clubs in, in kind of new ways. Uh, it looks like this was first um, started by Delta uh, last year, and then American followed, and now United has recently made an announcement about new rules restricting uh, access uh, to the clubs. So, so, what, so what's, what's happening here? What, what does that mean for the traveler? Well, what it means for the traveler is is somewhat having a uh, trying to maintain the airlines are trying to main, uh, maintain a somewhat exclusivity to a certain. Experience. 
experiences and reward those frequent travelers. And what they've, there, there are two things, two forces at work here. First, record volumes on airports and record load factors or the percentage of seats that are filled on airlines means that there are more and more frequent travelers qualifying for club level status or wanting to buy club level status uh, if they're a frequent traveler. And this just is stressing out the current spaces in which these clubs operate because they weren't there 10, 15 years ago. They had to be carved out of space that you know, the airport was using for some other purpose, either for airline or functional um, uh, parts of the airport. Um, and they decided, that, OK, we can free up this space, renovate it and have some general uh, revenue generated from these airline clubs. And so those have become completely overcrowded if you've ever been in in the LAX um, Delta Lounge um, or the Centurion Lounge, if you want to talk about just card members uh, at LAX, it's, you can barely find a seat uh, at peak hours. And then when you've got delays, it's impossible to find a seat because people will be hanging out there rather than at the gate. And you know, there's free food and free drinks, and who wouldn't want that? And um, but they're they're losing that exclusivity. So what they're trying to do here is claw back some of that exclusive treatment and reserve that for people, A, who are willing to pay for it, or B, people who are willing to earn it by flying their airline more. So that's part of the revenue model is to you know grab that frequent flyer, that uh, flyer that's going to dedicate more of their time if they can get a certain type of rewards. And those rewards extend not only you know, from the lounge, but also uh, boarding. Um, if I can just, you know, wander a little bit far afield here, um, one of the complaints that we see most often in the J.D. Power study is why can't they board the plane faster? They're putting the people in the front of the plane on first, and then we have to wait for them to get out of the aisle so I can get back to the cheap seats. Um, and that's really just a, 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 a function of wanting to reward those frequent flyers, because as we mentioned in previous podcasts, the fastest way to load a plane is just to tell everybody, OK, everybody on board. Uh, that's by far the you know the fastest way to board a plane in any time in motion study has ever been done on it. But that does not reward your frequent flyer. And so getting more exclusivity and charging a little bit more for the experience is something they're trying to do to realign um, what they feel their best revenue passengers are and giving them the experience and also incentivizing people to purchase that experience. Okay, thanks, Mike. Uh, topic number three, let's move to hospitality. So there was an announcement this morning, Jenny, from Marriott uh, that uh, hackers have stolen about 500 million records from the Starwood Hotel's reservation system. And it looks like hundreds of millions of guests are potentially uh, have had their data compromised here. So so, so what, what is the implication here for the, um, the hospitality uh, industry? Uh, number one, and and then also the you know, the potential impact on guest satisfaction. Well, I, I think the the short answer across any industry is um, these data breaches do, do impact satisfaction because they impact trust. Um, your trust in a brand as a consumer, um, but in the hospitality specifically, as there's such a focus on personalization, um, there's a need for guests to provide their data to the industry in order for them to provide a personalized experience. And if I lose that trust because you've mishandled my data or something has happened and there has been a breach, I'm less likely to provide that data to you. So now you can't personalize my experience and, and then I'm less satisfied overall. So it's, it's, a, it's a continuous loop here. And um, 
it's definitely something that, depending on how how they handle it, um, can can come out one way or the other. Uh, there's some companies that have done really great outside of these breaches, and there's some companies that are still suffering the effects of, of breaches years ago. So, so we'll have to see. It's the first one of this size in the hospitality industry, so um, it, it's it's big, and it, it'll be interesting to see how Marriott Starwood works through that. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. This is really breaking news from today, so I expect we'll see much more of this in the in the coming days and weeks. So topic number four, let's move to rental car. Uh, so Mike, uh, J.D. Power this month released the uh, the rental car satisfaction study, and one of the, um, the, the key insights coming out of that study was that apps are helping to drive rental car satisfaction to record levels. And that's exactly right. In fact, uh, the, diff- the point differential is 58 points on our 1,000-point scale. And to give you an idea, the uh, top scoring, uh, uh, the winning brand was Enterprise again this year. Congratulations to Enterprise. Uh, they had a score of 862. Um, the folks have finished uh, among the ranked brands in our study. Uh, the lowest was uh, 811. And that 58-point differential for using the app, meaning if I'm using the app to do something, make a reservation, change um, something about my rental car or buy another service, um, my satisfaction goes up by 58 points. I would take you from the last place to the first place. So the usage of the app, um, you know, it can really drive satisfaction and also increases the interaction that someone has with the rental car company, making it easier to perform all the basic functions or the unusual functions of, say, switching out a car or upgrading your car or adding that extra day becomes something you don't have to pick up a phone to do. You just hit the button. don't have to speak to anybody. That's something millennials love, the fact that they don't have to speak to anybody and they just have to tap into their phone. Um, But that makes a big, big difference. And um, uh, all of our rental car companies are really um, concentrating on increasing the usage of their apps as well as the experience that the passenger has or the customer has while he or she is using the app. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, and then uh, last topic, topic number five, is really around travel activity. So I was recently at a, a large travel conference, and there was a lot of buzz around uh, this idea of, um, of travel activities. Uh, when you look at uh, uh, what's been happening in 2018, uh, a lot of startups uh, are getting, raising a lot of money uh, in this area. So there was a travel activities platform that raised $200 million earlier this year. Uh, there's an OTA for tour holidays that also raised uh, so a Series C round uh, earlier this year. And then more recently, uh, this month, actually, TripAdvisor uh, announced uh, their um, their earnings, and, and then we saw a, a pop in their share price by 15%. And that was really on the strength of their fast-growing leisure offerings business. So, so Jenny uh, and, and, and Mike, we'd like to get your take on this. Uh, what, what, with all this activity um, in terms of investment and expansion and and uh, and growth uh, what what does that mean for the travel industry but also what does that mean for the guest experience or the traveler experience so Jenny if you want to take it first and then we'll and then we'll go to Mike Sure. Yeah, I think this is the next logical evolution as we see this experience generation really uh, becoming the 
one of the larger groups of travelers, right? Um, we know millennials have a focus on experiences over goods, and travel in its, of itself is an experience. Um, the ability to book uh, tours and activities, though, is, is only going to enhance the experience. Uh, it enhances the shareability. It's going to, um, I think, provide for some of those in, uh, industry influencers to really get their pictures out there. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, from a satisfaction perspective, we've been able to tie to our hotel study, our airline study, the more things that someone experiences while they're on property or while they're on the plane, um, the more satisfied they are overall, just because they're getting everything that experience has to offer, really taking it all in. So I can imagine um, it, it may mean in some cases there's less time spent in the hotel room, um, but uh, there's going to be a, a higher level of satisfaction if you're really making that leisure trip um, more satisfying overall. So, yeah. Now, on the rental car side of things, um, we see the same kind of phenomenon with millennials is they tend to rent higher end vehicles with a higher per day rental cost. And in return, believe it or not, they happen to be happier about the whole experience. And our theory here at J.D. Power is that millennials uh, as a group have less car ownership, uh, personal car ownership than, uh, say, baby boomers or any other generation you care to name. And since they don't have that monthly car payment, they're willing to spend on the experience during their leisure activities to get that Ford Mustang rather than the Ford Fiesta for example. And because they've got uh, the car that has better performance, usually comes with more bells and whistles, um, you know, they're happier about it. So that's one of the phenomenons, phenomenon we see in the rental car study as well, as far as experiences going and how, how people can be happier actually spending more money. It's a great business proposition for the rental car companies. Well, Mike and Jenny, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, thanks to everyone listening to uh, to today's uh, JD Power Travel podcast. To learn more about the travel practice at JD Power, please visit us on the web at jdpower.com/business, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>